Hi, and welcome to the Well-Read Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion on books and reading. I'm Hallie. And I'm Anne. And we are librarians who love to read and talk about books. And today we are going to be talking about books that take place on campuses. So it is September when we are recording. It's actually September 1st. And lots of people are going back to school, some in person, some remote virtual learning. And so we thought this would be a fun topic to talk about some novels that take place on school campuses. So you can, if you are out of school and beyond that, or if you are remote, you can kind of vicariously live through some of these people who are in the books going to a campus every day. Uh, And do you like campus novels? Oh my gosh, yes. They're so much fun. (laughs) They're the best. What do you think is the appeal of them? Like, Like for you, what's the what's the draw? I don't know. I think there's something about that like insular world where I I guess I sort of think back to my own college experience maybe where your whole world is just in this very small area where all of the people that you know live in close proximity and everything you're doing is in close proximity and it just feels all very safe in some ways and then there's lots of drama because everybody knows everybody and I don't know I don't know what it is about campus novels that draw me to them I mean since I have left school I think part of it is to kind of hearken back to those times that when I was in school but I don't know what do you think I think for me it's because I didn't have that experience Mm -hmm. like my college experience wasn't at all like the typical campus novel so for me it's it's always been a vicarious experience and and like I eventually got that when I went to um, Indiana but when I went to undergrad at ASU it was it was I lived at home and I grew up a mile away from campus and Mm -hmm. it's hot so you didn't have seasons and it it just doesn't it never felt that way to me the, Mm -hmm. the way that you saw it on television and so I think that because I didn't have the typical fall experience of of like crisp leaves and and you know I went I had the back to school feeling but it just didn't feel like the things I saw in movies or on mm-hmm. TV and so I've always been really drawn to them for that reason because it felt like this this uh, foreign experience to me. Well, I feel the same way about books and TV and movies that are take place in boarding schools. So yeah, yes. I did have more of a typical undergrad experience where I went and lived on campus and the things that you're describing that you didn't have. But I didn't go to a boarding school. And so I love reading about that. It's a little peek into a world that I don't know anything about. Yeah. And it's fun to to read about the experiences that I will never have and never did have and yeah. get to live well, through the characters. And something about about living in the same place where you're you're doing everything mm-hmm. and and I mean this is essentially what you were just saying, but I but I think that the idea that you could go back to your room for just a little bit and then go eat somewhere and then go to class and, and having everything that accessible like I just couldn't imagine that really? <laughs> so yeah it was oh, so funny. crazy to me even ASU has a really spread out campus it's yeah. it's not it's a really big school and so it just never felt like I don't know that I could have even done that if if it were if I had lived on campus so well it's so it's funny where I went to undergrad now I'm trying to remember I think there were about 3,500 students, I think, in the undergrad, and then another maybe 1,500 in graduate school there or something like that. But mm-hmm. uh, you could walk everywhere, basically. I mean, it was just it was a walkable campus, and every, a lot of people lived on campus. If people lived in, when they 
became juniors and seniors and lived off campus, then you would have to drive. But generally, everything was in walking distance. And then I went to graduate school at UNC, and there was a bus system. And I remember my yeah. first few days thinking it was so overwhelming to me to think of taking the bus to to get to classes and things like yeah. that. It just seemed so big and sprawling, and it was so different from my undergrad experience. But yeah, uh, it's just funny. It's just funny to think about <laughs> the appeal of of books that uh, we didn't do any books that take place at, in Oxford, but mm-hmm. the appeal of of even more insular like Mm -hmm. you're at a university that has its own college where everything is centered in this this college that that blows my mind maybe the ultimate mind-blowing book (laughs) (laughs) i know we almost did have one that takes place at oxford but then we we switched it up at the end yeah all right well what is your first campus novel so first i will talk about ninth house by lee bardugo and i loved this so much that I've been so excited to talk about it all week. So um, this is the first novel from the author of the Grishaverse um, series. It's There's several trilogies and duologies and stuff, um, but that's a YA series. And so I like those books, but this is this one for me was a step above those. Um, so it's about a, a, I think she's 20, a 20-year-old named Alex Stern, and she is a freshman at Yale, but she's not her typical Yale student that you would think of. She is from LA, and she was raised by a hippie mom, and she's a high school dropout and a former drug addict, and she's half Jewish and half Latina. And those, if you think of Yale, are two things that have been historically kept out by this very waspy campus. So um, at the beginning of the book, um, actually, I think it, I think it kind of takes place a little bit later in the book but but basically you find out that she um woke up in the hospital to find out that she had been the only survivor of a, a multiple homicide that took place in a house where she and um her best friend and her boyfriend and some other people were were doing drugs and uh she was the only one that survived this and so she um, sees that there's a man sitting there by her bed and he offers her this incredible deal. He he says his name is Dean Sandow and he can pave the way for her to attend Yale for free if she'll become a member of his secret society called Lethe, which um, basically acts as a watchdog for the other eight secret societies that are on campus. And these societies are real. They're, the most famous is Skull and Bones, which is um, pretty famous, I think. Um, it's name, or It's known for having very elite graduates like the Bush family and John Kerry and um, pe- many people that have become presidents and CEOs and sort of being the the cream of the crop of, of um, American society. These different groups are meeting in buildings called tombs on campus and they hold secret rights there, which are all real. But in the book, the secret rights involve doing actual magic to gain power in various ways. So these groups were unchecked until the creation of Lethe that was created to make sure that they didn't abuse their power and harm people. So Alex has been sort of groomed for this by uh, by the dean because she can see ghosts and Lethe uh, members normally have to take an elixir that allows them to see ghosts and um, ghosts are everywhere on campus because it's the center for magic and the ghosts 
wreak havoc on the the different ceremonies that the secret societies are performing. Um, and so they have to be kept in check by the members of Lethe as well. So um, Alex is being mentored by a senior named Darlington. His, his name is uh, Daniel Arlington, but he's nicknamed Arlington and he's from New Haven, but grew up very rich. And he's obsessed with the idea of New Haven becoming this center for magic and sort of how that, that came to be. So at some point during the fall, he mysteriously disappears. Um, so Alex is basically on her own and she's really unprepared for the things that are being asked for, asked of her. And one night she's observing a prognostication at Skull and Bones and they're using, I, th- I think it's a homeless man or, or um, mm-hmm. someone, you know, down and out that's, that's, uh, they've, they're basically reading his entrails for stock market information to, to become more rich. And um, he's going to survive. They're going to to fix him up and everything, but they prey on people who are homeless and drug abusers and people that are at the hospital that don't have any family or anyone to to um, account for them. So while she's in the room, the ghosts that are, are watching this start to freak out and Alex is terrified. She doesn't know what's going on because that's not normal. And when she leaves, she's told by someone at Lethe that there's been a murder of a woman from from the town that doesn't go to school um but she's been murdered on campus and that alex needs to look into it and that starts this very terrible series of events so i will give some trigger warnings um it's a pretty violent book and there are characters who deal with sexual assault and there's drug abuse and lots of other very dark gritty things um but the to me, the entire point of the book was to comment on the tension between Yale and everyone else that's thrown together with with Yale students in this very small space. And um, I thought it made really compelling points about how the the white wealthy elite of, of Yale uses everyone else for their own ends. But the reason I loved it is because to me, it just felt like fall. <laughs> it was so much fun. It was like perfect fall feeling and the going back to school feeling coupled with horror and it felt like the, just the ultimate Halloween read mm-hmm. and the secret societies are all, I mean, any, any article or anything about secret societies is, is always pretty interesting. And so just to have that as, as another piece to that, to this book just felt like, like, I just don't know that I could have come up with a plot that was more appealing to mm-hmm. To what I wanted to read right now. So I just loved it so much. I, I do think that this is kind of more what I was looking for when I read A Darker Shade of Magic mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, because it just felt more clearly like an adult novel. The mm-hmm. The plot is much more complex and the mythology is much more complex than what Leigh Bardugo has written in, in her previous books, which are, are good, but it's just very obvious that she stepped up her game in this. Mm-hmm. So um, I I read it so slowly because I loved it so much and I just wanted it to keep going. So that is Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. Yeah, I really liked this one too. I read this last year and I actually picked it up at one point and started reading it and couldn't get into it and set it aside and then came back to it again later because, and even the second time, I thought that the way it starts is a little bit jarring that you're, mm-hmm. you, it, it's it's not always clear right at first I don't remember now if it jumps back and forth in time. It does. And it's, so it's, it's like things part, sort of unspool. Yes. So I think that sort different of way. it didn't grab me right off the bat. But then once I stuck with it, I really enjoyed it. And by the end, I was very eager for the next one because I just thought the way it, it wraps up is 
leads you to to want to oh, read yeah. more. So, um, yes. so I would say if there's anybody that this sounded good and they try it and they don't immediately get into it, to to be a little bit patient with it and stick with it because I do think it's a very rewarding book and it's very kind of twisty book. So yeah. the, the stuff that's happening at the beginning, you just have to trust that it's going to become clearer as you go along. Yeah. Um, so, but I loved it as well. I think if I hadn't, if I hadn't been uh, craving that sort of the drama of her mm-hmm. being in school and trying to juggle things, which mm-hmm. is very prevalent at the beginning of the book of, of her like mm-hmm. being out of her element. I don't know that I would have, I, like, I, I think I may have been more in that position where I mm-hmm. wasn't grabbed by it, but, but because it got into the school stuff. So immediately yeah. I was, I was just really in the mood for that. So yeah. I was, I was really pleased with it. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Cause that's originally what I picked for you instead of a darker shade of magic. Yes. If you recall. And then I changed and it on you. changed it. I yes. do. You know me better than I know myself. <laughs> I just had a feeling you were going to like that one. Uh, so my yeah. first one is Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas. And I believe Elizabeth Thomas, I believe this is her debut. I don't think she's written any other books. Uh, and Catherine House is a very, very elite private school. It is, it's a college, but not a college. Because when you are admitted... You go for three years and you don't leave and you don't see your family and that's all you do is stay in this house. And it's literally a house that's that you live in and do your classes in and all of that. And our main character is named Inez. She was a very good student in high school, but is glad that she has a, a bit of a past that she is glad that nobody else Catherine House knows about and that they're not going to be able to find out about it because nobody's ever leaving so nobody would have the opportunity to stumble on anything from her past and when she gets there she falls into a lot of behavior that derails her studies a little bit she is partying a lot and she's sleeping around and she's not attending class very often isn't really she does get the sense that potentially she could be kicked out because of it but she doesn't really seem to care all that much that she might get kicked out um, and then there's this kind of a mysterious thing happening at the school where they study something there's a specific uh, concentration so sort of like a major or something like that where a segment of the students study something called plasm which is a mysterious substance nobody quite knows what it is or what it does but it has this reputation for erasing your past. Inez is curious about it, but doesn't, you have to be a very, uh, you have to have very good grades and be considered one of the elite students to be able to qualify to go into that concentration. And she basically almost fails out after her first year. And so she's not eligible for it. And she's taken to this isolation room where she thinks they're going to expel her. And they instead, they talk to her and say that she can't continue in this way. They know she has a lot of promise and that she needs to stick with, she needs to study more, basically. Um, <laughs> and that they're also going to leave her in the isolation room for a little while. They give her this plasm protocol and they tell her that that's going to help her in the future. And so after the experience, she rejoins her friends and her community and seems to start doing better in classes but also seems very disconnected and things that happened in the past 
feel very fuzzy to her. So it's almost like they did something to her brain to cause her to forget some of the things that she used to care about. Hmm. Um, So it's all very mysterious. It's all very creepy. It feels like everybody has ulterior motives that aren't on the up and up (laughs) that they're going to be using this their research for uh, nefarious means and it's very it's like a modern gothic novel basically I always think of gothic novels as historical but Mm -hmm. this is set in the modern day and Catherine House is literally crumbling the building is crumbling creepy things are happening it's a very detached narration. So it's all from Inez's viewpoint. And so because she's a little bit distant from what's happening, I think as a reader, you feel that distant dreamy quality that everything is happening, but with a with some distance to it. So it doesn't feel like the immediacy of some of it. It's just you're observing it all, sort of the way Inez feels like she's observing a lot of the stuff, but not necessarily involved in it. Um, it's a very haunting book. I was I finished it, and I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. Like, I didn't know if I liked it or not, but I definitely was engaged with it while I was reading it. So this is one I think I just read this last week, so I need to sort of let it sit for a little yeah. while and see how I feel about it. But I would definitely be curious to read more from this author because I think that what she set out to do, she did very well. And not everything is tied up in a neat bow at the end. And there's still sort of some things left out there. And I don't think there's going to be a sequel or anything. I just mean that, you know, sort of like life, like things don't always get all wrapped up and not every question is answered, which I like that sometimes when there's a little bit of ambiguity left in it. So oh yeah. um, anyway, so I think actually, I think you would like this because it is moody and gothic. And I think that there's, there are elements of this book and the style that you would really like. I'd be curious if you read it, what you thought. Uh, but that is the Catherine House by, or excuse me, Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas. I actually have it set aside as one of my read faster than other books you have um, pile, mm-hmm. which I have so many piles like that, it, it makes it meaningless. But um, but yeah, this one has me written all over it. Plus the cover is so pretty. It's It's like blues and magentas and and swirls and stuff so um yeah I've I've heard really good things about it yeah it's 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 worth reading definitely and it's it's like the dark side of a campus novel where you're so insular that and I mean literally they go and they don't leave so they're they're isolated from everything they knew yeah prior to coming and so it's it's everything about a campus novel that you like to the nth degree because it's so isolated. Yeah, where it becomes claustrophobic. Right, and, exactly. And exactly. Oh, it sounds so good. Maybe I'll read that in October. Oh, fun. Okay, yeah. what's your next one? Um, so next is something lighter. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's Dear Committee Members by Julie Schumacher. And we both talked about doing this one, but yeah. I don't know. I won. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I had more choices to pull from than Yeah, you did, I hadn't read as many. So yeah. I was. I said, I'm going to do this one. So this is a satire of academia. So it's 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 supposed to be a funny book and it's about a man named jason fitcher i assume is how you pronounce it it's f-i-t-g-e-r and he's a professor and he's middle-aged and he teaches creative writing in english at a small university in the midwest and of course the english department is facing a huge budget and staffing uh cut uh dilemma in order to provide funds for for the university to provide funds for other more high high profile departments, um, and so 
specifically, they have the economics department in their building. And so they're forced to watch them get this gorgeous remodel while his, while Jason's own office has rainwater just pouring through (laughs) cracks in the windows. And um, that, that to me is very funny. I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but I relate it so much to my own college experience because ASU had very much decided to invest in the sciences, which Mm -hmm. I think is super common that there, mm-hmm. there's no money in the humanities and so they put all their money into the sciences and so there were all these huge state-of-the-art buildings going up all over like on the outskirts of campus and then in the language and lit building where I was primarily there were no working clocks <laughs> so <laughs> it's you know that's fair so um, so I love that they get got that detail into into this book. So so Jason has had one successful novel published and then he wrote a series of unsuccessful knowledge knowledge unsuccessful novels and he has a, a habit of inserting his personal life into his writing so you can imagine that he just has um, failed relationships and and friendships and uh, his marriage has failed um, just left and right of of him because he he can't keep it out of his books and so he's become really curmudgeonly and annoyed and he basically has alienated everyone he knows and he's put his own writing and research on hold um he he's been forced to do that because of the bureaucracy of of the university and he spends all of his time writing letters of recommendation so this novel basically tells the plot through those those letters of recommendation and so you sort of learn the backstory for for what, how he's become the way he is by reading the, these very nasty letters. Jason basically is passive aggressive in all of them. He he spends his his time calling out bad students in their the letters that they've asked for um, to their future employers, and he sabotages colleagues that he doesn't like in order to gain more um, beneficial leadership positions. And he just does all kinds of terrible things like sending a blank letter uh, to someone or on behalf of someone just because he can. <laughs> so um, it, it sort of tickles tickles me because I, I find uh, terrible people funny, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my love for this book is because it, it really takes away the, the romanticized portrayal that I have mm-hmm. of the university and... Um, I think I've I've said this before as well. Most of my friends are professors. Most of my close pre- friends are professors that I met when I went to IU, mm-hmm. and they were in school at the time, and now they're professors. And they genuinely love their jobs and they love their students, but they also can tell me terrible, terrible stories mm-hmm. about university mm-hmm. bureaucracy and just you know the the insane things that students try to get away with. So um, my experience, uh, uh, you know. I I've, don't have any of those kinds of things that have happened to me in school, but the things that they talk about are much more similar to this novel than sort of my idealized dream of study sessions on the quad and, and those kinds of things. That's that's just not what's happening in this book. So it has some pretty dark humor and it's it just is, is not ideal in any way, which I enjoy quite a bit. So I, I know that there's been a sequel called The Shakespeare Requirement that came out maybe last year, I want to say, pretty recently, um, but I haven't read it yet. So I am I know that it's just more of him being a curmudgeon. So mm. that sounds fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Dear Committee Members by Julie Schumacher. Yeah, that's a fun book that takes the 
like you said, the idealized version of academia sort of opens yeah. it up to what it might actually be like. Yeah. The frustrations. <laughs> you picture being a professor and like it being that you're the next C.S. Lewis yeah. at Oxford and it's that's not what it means to no. be a professor anymore. <laughs> uh, so my next one is Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. And I really thought I've already talked about this book, but I don't see it. We keep a spreadsheet of all of the week. And keeps a spreadsheet of all of the titles that we talk about. And I didn't see it on there. So I apologize if I've already talked about this book. But I'm going to go forward as if I have not. Uh, because I trust your record keeping. Hooray. <laughs> it doesn't sound familiar to me. So I don't. Okay, good. So I don't. Yeah, I don't know why I have it in my head that I talked about it. But all right. So it is about a woman named Ivy Gamble, who is a private investigator. And she does the typical cases that a private investigator takes on lots of cheating spouses and things like that and she's kind of burnt out with it but it's a living and she's doing okay for herself and then she is called one day to a school uh, to investigate the death of a teacher the headmaster wants to find out if it was murder it was a, it's a pretty gruesome death scene and so the headmaster thinks that there was something more going on than something natural Ivy goes and is going to see what she can learn. Um, but the, the twist is that this is not just an ordinary school. This is a school for students who have magical abilities. And Ivy's twin sister works at the school as a teacher. And Ivy's twin sister has magical abilities and Ivy herself does not. And this became apparent when they were in high school and her sister was very talented and Ivy tried but never had the ability that her sister did. And so they have been, become estranged and haven't spoken in many years. And so Ivy shows up not quite knowing what to expect of how she's going to be received by her sister, but it's a job and she is committed to doing a good job. Uh, and Ivy immediately feels like an outsider because everybody at the school can do magic and she cannot. And it brings back a lot of feelings of inferiority and insecurity that she had when she was younger and when she was compared to her sister all the time. Uh, so Ivy is dealing with some complex emotions about taking this case on. And there's also a, a teacher that seems interested in Ivy and she she can't be sure if he is interested in her because he's trying to sway the investigation into a certain way or if that he's truly interested in her. And she's dealing with the relationship with her sister and trying to navigate that and then also trying to investigate this murder. So I loved this book. I had never read Sarah Gailey before and I thought that this was such a fun book and I will tell you a little bit why. Uh, I felt like it has every, so sometimes it feels like when a book has a lot of different elements to it, it doesn't do any of them well, but I felt like the opposite. This book had so much to it. It had family drama, it has high school shenanigans because it takes place in a school. So you're learning about the students and Ivy's investigating and so there's some student drama happening that she is Again, trying to figure out if it has anything to do with the murder, if it's just typical teenage stuff that's happening. The mystery is really solid. I, I didn't think that it was easily figured out of, of, you do know pretty early on that it is a murder, uh, but you don't, I thought it was well played that you don't exactly know who committed the murder. There's a little bit of a romance. Like I said, this guy, this other teacher is interested in her. And then there are the fantasy elements of the 
fact that there's magic. And then the boarding school, obviously, we're talking about campus novels, so the boarding school element is always fun. But it's all balanced really, really well. I think that Sarah Gailey is very talented at inserting just enough of each of those elements to keep it interesting without it becoming bogged down in any of them. And so, and even though it's a fantasy, that just seems like the framework for what was the focus, which I felt was the mystery, and then the interpersonal Hmm. dynamics between the sisters. And then Ivy's own feelings of insecurity and coming to terms with who she is and, and what her place in this world is. So I don't know. I think it was just, it was unique. It wasn't something that I felt like I had read a bunch of times, either as a mystery or as a fantasy novel. Uh, and I really liked Ivy as the main character. I cared about her her path as she was figuring things out. And I cared about the mystery. I wanted to know, uh, I wanted to figure out who did it. And so it was just all done very, very well. So that is Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. That sounds so good. I love, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. There's so many fantasy novels too that have that just lean so heavily on the fantasy side of it mm-hmm. that, that and because I'm not someone who cares as much about the the uh, world building of, mm-hmm. of the rules and everything mm-hmm. like that um, that that it turns me off a little bit but that mm-hmm. sounds perfect of, of it yes. existing but not being the focus right, exactly. right. I think that you would like this because it's just a matter of fact it's just a, a matter-of-fact part of the story that magic right. exists. There's no sense of how it works or why it works. It's just it it exists. And that's what you buy into that by reading this book. And I, I like that, same as you. I don't always, when there's a very complex system, and it sort of loses me a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, I like this. This is, this is sort of the... Like the Harry Potter amount of magic, I think, where it's just, yeah. it's just a given that this exists. And then you read the story with that knowledge and yeah and that's sort of that's kind of how this portrays it yeah that sounds really good yeah all right what's your last one so last is fangirl by rainbow rowell and uh remember back when we talked about rainbow rowell every episode (laughs) that was a good time we should have just called this the rainbow rowell podcast we should have, but we haven't <laughs> talked about her in a really long time. So then that would have confused everyone. Except we just talked about her in the fall preview. But other than that, yeah. yes, you're right. <laughs> huh. It's like a cycle with us. <laughs> uh, so this this book, I think, is her second book that, that came out um, a few years ago. And it's about a, a young woman named Kath. And she's a freshman at the University of Nebraska. And she's attending with her twin sister, Ren. And they're both away from home for the first time. And um, Kath especially is worried about leaving her dad, who is alone after their mom left the family um, recently. And she, he also struggles with his health. And so she she has very mixed feelings about going away to college. But, but um, he encouraged it. And so she did. Um, so Kath wants to be roommates with Ren and have them still do everything together. But Ren is really uh, anxious to... Um, branch out on her own and have new experiences by herself and so she kind of abandons Kath to find her own comfort zone and um, those are not the things that Ren is is interested in. She wants to do typical college experiences like partying and going to football games and stuff like that and that's just not what what Kath is is um, that's not why her, where her interests lie um, and so she also is struggling with social ang- social anxiety and um, 
it's not easy for her to do things that seem simple to other people, like go to the cafeteria and and sort of navigate that new system on her own. Though That's really overwhelming to her. So she ends up comforting herself by diving uh, even deeper than she was into the world of Simon Snow, which is basically a, a Harry Potter stand-in. It's, you know, they, they talk about it in the book as being this very famous series of books that had movies and um, adapted uh from the books and it has this huge rabid fan base and so um kath and wren together used to write simon snow fan fiction and were kind of famous for it in the the various fan forums but um they had been writing together this new ending that involved simon snow and his antagonist baz and they rewrote the story as a gay love story and so there was they were like right up to the end of the story and didn't finish it before they went to college but they have all these people waiting to see how they resolved the story so ren is just not interested at all in this anymore and um so Simon Snow becomes the safe place for, for Kath and she becomes more invested in it instead of less um, as she is in, in school. And she she sort of tries to find an outlet for that by taking writing classes, hoping that she can go a little bit further with her this this thing that she feels she's very good at. So Kath's roommate is named Reagan and she's worried basically about how well Kath is coping with things. And so she tries to draw her out with help from from her friend Reagan's friend Levi and Levi and, and Kath end up becoming close and um, it, it he starts to finally show uh, Kath what it could be to have a healthy college experience um, but she still is is trying to use Simon Snow as a crutch when everything else in her life is sort of getting out of control um, but for the first time she's starting to see as well that that can get in the way of reality when reality has very good things to offer so basically it's a, a book that's about how hard it is to let go of childhood and how sometimes we're forced into an adulthood that we're not quite ready for and it just it just happens and, and we have to deal with it um, and I, I like that this book it, probably any beyond any other I've read has really shown what it's like to start college and that that excitement of it but you're also terrified because Mm -hmm. it's like this code that everyone understands that that you don't and there are new friendships and there's potential romance and you're you're pushing yourself and trying to find out what you're you're capable of and it's just so different than high school where things are are laid out a little bit more for you Mm -hmm. um so, so I really, I think she captures that just beautifully in this book. And I know that uh, you have read, I think, at least one of the Simon Snow mm-hmm. spinoff novels. So, yeah. so Rainbow Rowell basically wrote the books um, that she talks about in in this book. And I never got to them. I don't know why. <laughs> so, but what did you think of them? Were, were you a fan Yeah, so I've only read the first one and I did not love it. I, I prefer her fun, realistic novels I think than this foray but I do know people who do love them I don't know if it was I don't recall now but I feel like it was it felt too much like Harry Potter but then not and I don't know I just I don't know if my expectations were too high I'm not sure but I was just thinking as you were talking that it might be time for a Rainbow Rowell reread at some point of yeah because I was just talking to a coworker about attachments and how much I loved that book I love fangirl I liked that one about the 
husband and the wife and the phone landline, I think it was called. Uh-huh. Um, so I might have to do it. And I would give whatever the Simon Snow book is called. I Carry on. Carry on. Thank you. Yeah. I would give that one another shot because it's so much. I'm such a mood reader and so much yeah. of it could have depended on. And I wasn't in the right mood and I came in from the library. And so I read it. But it, I don't know. I just think that I should give it another shot because. Yeah. I, and part of it, I think, is just because I loved her other books so much that. Right. I, I don't know that I was prepared to dive into a fantasy world that she wrote as much as I wanted another book like Fangirl or Attachment. So yeah, well, it's tricky when like I always admire when an author pivots, Mm -hmm. because I think that's impressive that they are trying new things. And I I like that they are willing to branch out. But then then there's also that feeling of but you do the other one so so well. well. Yeah. So So um, it's tricky. But yeah, fangirl, I love, love, love. Yeah. I, and I agree that I think she captures a lot of those emotions that a lot of people have in starting college or any new situation. She just captures yeah. those feelings so well. So, yeah, um, it's a good one. All right. So, my last one is Admission by Jean Hampf Korolitz. And this comes at the campus novel from a slightly different perspective, I think. Uh, so, it's less about students at school um, and it's about a 38 year old admissions officer at Princeton. So, her name is Portia and she is it, the beginning of the book takes place as she is doing a road trip where she is traveling around New England to talk to prospective students at different schools, um, talk about Princeton, try to encourage people to apply because, of course, that's one of the things that colleges like to boast about how many applicants they get and what their acceptance rate is and things like that. So that's part of her job. As she is traveling, she ends up at a school called Quest, which is a school she's never visited before. And it's a it's an alternative high school. And it is extremely alternative in that there's very little of a traditional classroom setup. It's students have the ability to pursue their own interests in any way. And um, there are lots of outdoor gardening and things like that that will help students practically as well as they just give them a lot of freedom to pursue any sort of study that they want. And she meets one student who uh, she's particularly intrigued by and thinks he'd be a really good fit at Princeton, even though he doesn't really fit in the mold of many of the students who do apply. Um, But he's an autodidact, so he is uh, very interested in all sorts of different things and then studies studies them as much as he can to learn as much as he can and then moves on to other subjects. And he's very, very intelligent. She just she thinks he'd be a good fit in that Princeton would have a lot to offer him, but she also thinks that he could bring a lot to Princeton and bring a new perspective. Um, so after she her visit, she returns home and finds out that her live-in boyfriend, who uh, they've been together for years, has gotten another pre- another woman pregnant, and uh, and so he moves out, and she's feeling a little bit at a loss because she's not exactly sure what she's doing with her life at 38 years old, and now she is single, and um, she does have this career that she enjoys, but other than that, she doesn't have a whole lot in her life. So then the book follows her as she goes through the admission season at Princeton, and it is a... It's, I thought it was a fun perspective to read about because there's lots about what what she thinks about as she's going through the applications and how she determines who's going to get offered a spot. And that's such sort of like a closed door thing, I think, when you are applying to schools and there's so much 
stress and tension over where you're going to get accepted and where you're going to go. So seeing it from the reverse side is interesting because all of these students that are applying to Princeton are the top of the top of the top of their classes and they have all these extracurricular activities and they have so much to offer and how do you make a decision of who gets to attend when everybody is amazing so it's just kind of interesting to see that behind the scenes peek into what the admissions process looks like um so Portia is figuring out her own life at the same time and also trying to get the student from quest um to attend and there's a whole backstory there that uh, i think it, it just makes the it makes the whole process very interesting to see how she advocates for him. And he's not even really sure that he wants to go to Princeton. So she kind of takes it as her pet cause to get him to go. And, and that unravels in an interesting way. Um, and then you also know as a reader that she made a choice um, when she was in college that still affects her life today. And that is influencing a lot of how she's approaching her relationship with this boy and just how she is looking at her life now and, and questioning how she got to where she is. Uh, so I really liked this. I think they also made a movie out of it with I was Tina Fey. Yeah. Um, I don't know how long ago. Um, maybe a few, five years ago or so. Anyway, and the movie I thought was, was fun too, but I really liked the book. It's Admission by Jean Hanf Korolitz. It's. I I hadn't thought about how few books there are about staff members of mm-hmm. of colleges and universities, and and so that that is a really fun take on it. Of, yeah. Because usually it's either a professor or a student, and mm-hmm. that's that's it. But there's, you know, hundreds of people right. that are right running these schools, and so. these are the people. This character is part of a very small group of people that gets to decide who is going to attend. So yeah. they really mold the the community in a way so there's another book that's about to come out or just came out called admission also by julie buxbaum that i really want to read i've read some of her teen novels and i really liked those and this is an adult novel and i believe is also about an admissions officer so i can't get enough of those there's there was one that came out a couple of years ago that i liked as well but um anyway all right well uh we will be right back with what we're reading this week Okay, Anne, what are you reading this week? Uh, this week I'm reading Things in Jars by Jess Kidd. And this is something I'm reading for a book club, which um, I actually met yesterday and I haven't finished it. But that's <gasps> kind of standard for me to have read half a book You're kicked for a out. book club. <laughs> then I'm kicked out of literally every book club I've ever been in. <laughs> I always go with the book half read. Um, so I would... I, I'm going to use a word that is maybe a strange word to use to recommend a book, but it, I would describe this book as grotesque huh. because it's it's horrible, but fascinating and you can't look away from it. But the things you're looking at are, are horrible. So it has that weird that that sort of you love it and hate it kind of kind of dichotomy to it. So um, it's set in London in 1863 and it's about a woman named Bridie Devine who is an investigator and she has been really successful until her last case and she um she's kind of an odd woman anyway um it's she's not really your typical victorian lady that you you picture but um 
she still had a good reputation, but then her last case, she bungled and a child died because of it. And it really wasn't her fault, but she feels terrible guilt for this. So she's trying to recover from that. And she is called to Highgate Cemetery um, in Northern London, which um, if, if you know anything about London or if you've traveled there at all, it's just, it's like the most cemetery of all cemeteries. <laughs> Basically, it's it's so uh, overgrown and and just, you know, graves falling all over uh, or gravestones falling on top of other graves and stuff. It's just really atmospheric. So um, she's called there and she is asked to look into this walled space where she sees that there's a body of a woman and her baby and they, they've both died a long time ago, but she can see that the baby has really strange teeth. Like, like they describe it as a pike's teeth. So it has really sharp kind of needle-like teeth. So um, while she's there, she is kind of harassed basically by a ghost of a recently deceased boxer named Ruby Doyle. And he keeps giving her hints that he knows her and he says information about her that there's no way he could just be making up. And so um, they sort of needle at each other and he ends up following her home and sort of becomes her, her soundboard. Sounding board? Sounding board. Yeah. Um, He sort of becomes her sounding board as she's investigating these, um, these different strange things that are happening in her life. So when they, they do get home that first time, there's a visitor that's there who is on, who's visiting on behalf of Sir Edmund Berwick. And he wants Bridie's help to find Sir Edmund's kidnapped daughter, Christabel, but he won't give her any information and he won't involve the police. And he just says, come to the house. I need you to, to investigate. So she's curious and she agrees. And she finds out that Sir Edmund is a collector of curiosities, specifically things that are from the water. And she hears rumors that Christabel isn't actually his daughter, but something that he bought because she has these very strange white eyes and she can't speak, but she can scream at at an unnaturally high-pitched register. And she has these strange needle-like teeth, like the baby that that, um, Bridie saw in the wall. The other issue with her is that that strange things happen around her. So anyone that that's sort of unprotected when they come across her start to have strange thoughts and memories pop into their head and it, it really messes with their brain. And there are all these these water creatures that start to appear that sort of flock to her like like snails start to crawl up the walls and there's salamanders and newts that sort of come out of nowhere and there are mists that appear indoors and walls start to drip with condes- condensation. So she's definitely not, you know, the, uh, it, it seems pretty obvious that, that she isn't his natural daughter. So Bridie is, is not really bothered by that. She sort of takes it in stride until she comes, when she's at the this house of Sir Edmunds, she comes across a specimen in his study that she recognizes from her past. And it's something that shouldn't be there. And it sort of starts this parallel narrative of, of things that happened to her in her past and how those things are um, playing into the things that she's finding in this this case that she's been she's been asked to investigate. So it just has this very otherworldly feeling and um the the writing style is very self-aware, I would say. It's it's uh just highly written, but it's surprisingly readable for for the way it's written. I I thought that it would take me a lot longer to get th- you know to the point that I am because of of the writing style, but it it reads really fast and it also has the sort of Dickensian feel, both in its tone and in its style. So in, in Dickens novels, they're um, 
there are always these odd characters that sort of pop in and out that you don't really know mm-hmm. who they are, but they all come into play as a, as a whole at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very true here. And just like in a Dickens novel, most of the story is taking place kind of in back alleys and sort of deals with the forgotten corners of London. So it's it's just very atmospheric in that way. And I'm, I'm really enjoying um, mainly how it shows how weird Victorian London was um, because I think we tend to think of it, at least I do tend to think of it as this very prim and proper place. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just, you know, a, a better version of what we are now in certain ways, but it's, it's weird. It was mm-hmm. a really weird time and it was dirty and there were a big, there was a big interest in curiosities and things that were sort of uh, like, like mermaids and, and right. things kept in jars and stuff. And, and that was a big thing in the 18th and 19th centuries and sort of that fascination with with mystery and magic, but sort of applying a scientific angle to it. So mm-hmm. that's very much what this book is dealing with. So I would definitely say it counts as a gothic novel, but mm-hmm. it's it's definitely a different take on the gothic novel than mm-hmm. what I typically um, am going for with haunted houses and stuff like that. <laughs> so um, but it's very interesting. And so that is called Things in Jars by Jess Kidd. Interesting. I don't think that's a book for me, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, I don't know that you would like it so much. (laughs) You would probably think it was, I think it would, it would be interesting to you in the way that the deep was interesting to you. Right. It's just kind of like, you can tell the craft that's going into it, but it's not, it's not appealing. Right. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's accurate. So what I'm reading this week is Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Crosby. And I just started this. I'm not very far into it at all. So I'm going to going to tell you what I know about it from having read it. But also I did look at some reviews to talk about where it goes <laughs> because I felt like I couldn't give enough information based on just what I've read. Uh, so it's a heist novel. And I love a heist novel. I love a heist movie. I just love a good heist. Um, and this one is about a man named Beauregard Montage or Bug is his nickname. And he is... I'm guessing maybe in his 30s or 40s, and he's been trying to put his criminal past behind him. When he was younger, he was a wheelman for robberies, and he is now married with three kids, owns an auto repair shop, and so he is really trying to be on the straight and narrow and put all of that in his distant past. Wait, uh, what's what's a wheelman? The driver. Oh. The getaway driver. Okay. I'm not up on my heist terminology. Apparently. Well, they just keep referring to him as a wheelman, so I figure that's the getaway driver. Oh, okay, but maybe I'm wrong. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Our, I figure our caper heist listeners who yes. people who have robbed a bank before reach yeah. out to us and share the finer details. So he, he like I said, he owns uh, this garage where he fix cars. And recently a new garage has opened up right near his and it has caused his business to drop precipitously and he is not making the money that he did that he used to to support his family and at the same time his oldest daughter is about to head off to college and he would like to be able to help her out in um, paying for that and then also he has a terminally ill mother who is about to be kicked out of her nursing home because of like a medicaid issue so he has a lot of financial strife in his life and uh suddenly a couple of guys from his past show up and offer him the opportunity to join in on a foolproof jewel heist <laughs> that 
that just, you know, they're going to make a bunch of money. They're going to get in. They're going to get out. They know somebody at the jewelry store. And so they haven't, you know, they haven't all the knowledge that they need to be able to do this successfully and get out. And all they need is for him to drive the car. And so he agrees to do it because he wants he wants to get out of this hole, this financial hole that he is in. But the jewelry job goes spectacularly wrong and turns out that Beauregard is going to have to do one more job uh, now because of the failed robbery. And now the stakes are higher because his life is in jeopardy as are his uh, children and his wife's lives because um, bad men are, are, are part of this situation now. When I think of a heist book, I often think of it as kind of like lighthearted or mm-hmm. it, it's a caper, like you said. Like it's a... Yeah. Not all in good fun because there are stakes, but it's usually pretty um, light in tone. And this is not. This is an incredibly gritty book. It sort of has a melancholy tone, I would say. And it's a lot, so far at least, about uh, the main character, Beauregard, trying to do the right thing when it doesn't seem like that's what fate has in store for him so I will be interested to see where it goes but it doesn't I I don't foresee things going well given the state of the first jewelry robbery that didn't go so well so um but it's it's very well written it's not an author I'm familiar with I don't know if this is um their first book or not but I have not read anything else by this author and so I want to see what happens it's called Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Crosby Sounds very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's it for us, I think. And why don't you go back and read off all the books you talked about today? Okay. I talked about Ninth House by Lee Bardugo, Dear Committee Members by Julie Schumacher, Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell, and what I'm reading this week is Things in Jars by Jess Kidd. And I talked about Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas, Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey, Admission by Jean Hanf. Correlates, and what I was reading this week is Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Crosby. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us to give us feedback or a suggestion on a topic you'd like us to discuss, you can email us at wellreadpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at wellreadpodcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your other podcast provider of choice. Our theme music is Kitten by Poddington Bear. We keep our show notes at wellreadpodcast.wordpress.com where you can find a listing of every book we talked about in this episode. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening and happy reading.